Take two. This is your boy Marty Ben here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I have the immense pleasure of sitting down, sitting down with Lynn Alden, founder of the Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. Uh, we just discussed a lot of things. Uh, an article she wrote last week or the week before dove into the Triffin dilemma and the uh, and the situation the U.S. finds itself in as it has. Uh, stretched out its influence across the world using the U.S. dollar uh, system as a weapon or a tool to gain dominance. We talk about the Triffin Dilemma, uh, how QE may not have the uh, robust effect on inequality that many people think. It certainly does have an effect, but there are other variables at play here, and we dive into that. We also dive into Lynn's decision to invest in Bitcoin earlier this year and why she felt comfortable this time around compared to uh, 2017 when she first uh, wrote about Bitcoin for for her investors. So I think you guys are really going to like this episode. Incredible conversation. uh, Covered a lot of topics. I hope you guys enjoy. This episode is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App should know all about them, but if you don't know all about them, let me tell you about them. Uh, Cash App is the easiest place to stack sats. They're helping you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats, if you so please. And on top of that, they're making sats the standard. We're not stacking fractions of Bitcoins anymore. We're big boys and girls. We're stacking whole sats. Whole sats. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, potentially hundred millions at a time. If you're a big swinging dick out there, Cash App is making this extremely easy. On top of that... They're letting you stack slivers of stonks. I know you freaks don't love stonks out there, but I know there are some of you out there who, who are stonk curious. And if you are stonk curious, and your favorite stonk's a little too expensive, Cash App Investing is letting you invest as little as $1. Again, you can stack a sliver of a stonk. It is possible. Cash App Investing is a member SIPC in subsidiary square. Because all of this is connected to your bank account, you can start stacking in stonks, Slivers of stonks or sats today. There's no four to five day waiting period. Cash App may even be your bank account. They're giving out account numbers and routing numbers. Uh, you can direct deposit your paychecks into the Cash App now. Big boy shit. Big boy shit. See those Q2 numbers for Bitcoin volume? Big boy shit. All right, go download the Cash App. When you do, make sure you use the code stacking sats. That's S T A C K I N G S A T S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! Woo! It's Owls Lacrosse. Enjoy this episode. Enjoy your life. You only got one. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here uh, on a windy afternoon uh, after the hurricane. The storm has passed through South Jersey. Little damage. I'm sitting down with Lynn Alden, founder of the Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. And I, as I understand, you were affected by the storm as well. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we lost power. And it's just fun to find out just a couple minutes ago that we live like uh, like an hour from each other. Like, yeah. uh, so right in the same area. And uh, yeah, the storms have just knocked out power in some areas more than others. And it's just, you know, it's kind of been a hectic week. Yeah. It's early, early hurricane season. I wasn't expecting one at the beginning of yeah. August. Yeah. Um, while we're on the beginning of August, you wrote a piece on August 2nd that I uh, thoroughly enjoyed the big tax shift. And as always, uh, chatting with you before we hit record, it uh, were a couple of points in the piece that sort of challenge my beliefs, particularly around QE and how it affects inequality. Um, and that's what I really loved about this piece, particularly is that you dive in to the different variables that may be contributing to that and uh, the different themes that may contribute to the inequality in the U.S., particularly 
uh, around U.S. dollar status as the reserve currency of the world and, and how that's affected uh, inequality and wealth distribution in the state. So I'd love to just walk through this piece, what sort of drove you to write it and the conclusions that you came to. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, it was definitely a kind of a fun piece to write because it touched on so many different things and it was kind of a challenge tying the themes together. Yeah, and so it's, it's just uh, the one, again, uh, point that really challenged my beliefs that QE uh, drives inequality, what might to an extent, you sort of point out in this, this piece that uh, countries like Japan and uh, not a country, but an economy like the Eurozone uh, have far greater uh, QE, but less inequality. So there's definitely some more variables. And I think uh, to begin this conversation talking about the, the the shift from the U.S. as a manufacturing and industrial country to um, a service-based economy that's got investments in, in foreign governments or countries and stuff like that. Yeah, with, with anything as complex as wealth and equality always has multiple variables involved. So one of the one of the aspects of the article touched on the fact that, you know, there's this there's this kind of uh, common view, uh, which which makes a lot of sense on the surface that the more QE a country does, you know, the more that leads to wealth inequality. And of course, the the logic for that is pretty sound, right? Because as they, you know, print money to buy assets, uh, most of that kind of created wealth gets up into financial asset prices. So those that own the assets, which is a minority of people, end up, you know, getting disproportionate benefits from QE. So the, you know, the kind of the logical assumption is the more QE that a country does, the more wealth inequality we'd have from that effect. Uh, but it's what one thing that's interesting is that the numbers kind of show the opposite, or at least show that there's not a very strong correlation in the sense that, uh, you know, Japan, for example, has done more QE as a percentage of their GDP than pretty much any other country. Like, so their, their uh, Bank of Japan's balance sheet is over 100% of uh, Japan's GDP. They've been doing it longer and at a larger magnitude uh, than, than pretty much any other country. And they actually have among the lowest levels of wealth inequality. And of course, there are a variety of factors for there. It's a very it's, it's you know it's not a very diverse country it's kind of a very unified country it's 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 a very um you know not one of those politically polarized countries uh they have very uh inexpensive healthcare for example as uh, on a per capita basis despite the fact that they're you know the oldest country you'd expect them to have very high healthcare costs so they they do a lot of things kind of fiscally and just culturally that uh kind of don't lead to a lot of wealth concentration despite the fact that they've done a lot of this qe uh, and then you look at, say, the Eurozone, and they've done more QE than, than the U.S. has as a percentage of GDP, but not as much as Japan, not even close to Japan. And they're, you know, of course, that's a block of multiple countries. So some of the countries there have, you know, more wealth concentration than others. Um, but on average, it's somewhere between the U.S. and Japan, where, where they generally have a little bit more wealth concentration than Japan, but not, not as much as the U.S. for most of the countries. And then when you go to the, the U.S., we, we've done... You know, we're, we're catching up quickly here in 2020 with uh, some of the most rapid QE around. But if you look back, you know, since since inception, we've done less QE as a percentage of GDP. You know, if you look at, say, the Fed's balance sheet as a percentage of U.S. GDP than, than Europe or Japan, and yet we have far more wealth inequality. So it, it kind of... It, kind of points to the notion that there's definitely more factors involved uh, to, for a country's wealth uh, concentration than just their um, amount of QE they've done. And there, you know, there's factors like demographics, there's different sort of tax and fiscal policies, there's, you know, geopolitical things like currency reserve status, and all those things can kind of feed into, uh, you know, the equation that they can kind of, you know, have, have more wealth concentration or uh, less wealth concentration. Yeah. And Let's focus in on the the reserve currency status uh, aspect of this and, and the Triffin dilemma and this sort of hollowing out again of of the manufacturing base here in the United States over the last x x decades and uh, really moving our supply chains ac across the world and this is highlighted uh, a <laughs> in inefficiency or probably a weak spot uh, in America with this coronavirus uh, a lot of our supply chains are. In places that are not advantageous for us at this current moment in time and so that that race to be the the reserve currency of the world while it certainly has its advantages is proving in the long term to have some disadvantages as well yeah so if you look back uh, over say the past hundred years of of u.s wealth concentration it it reached a peak level uh in like the you know the late 1920s uh and it started to decrease for a while and then uh, around the, the 1960s, 1970s, it started to find a bottom. 
And then ever since then, we've been in this period of, of rising wealth inequality, uh, so, you, know, you know, the past like 50 years or so. And uh, one of the main things that happened during that whole period was the shift in, in kind of global monetary policy rather than just anything uh, U.S. specific. So starting, uh, you know, prior to then, there, there's like, you know, the Bretton Woods system. Uh, but then in 1971, of course, we went off the gold standard. And in the 1970s, they established a, like a, uh, the situation that we currently have today, even you know 50 years later, which is that the dollar is essentially the global reserve asset for for most of the world, and the you know all commodities around the world pretty much are priced in dollars. So even if you know France buys oil from Saudi Arabia, it's in dollars. It's it's not in in either of their currencies. It's in dollars, and that holds true for m most of the world. Most types of commodities are priced in dollars, and that made sense for a while because after you know World War II and then and then into the you know 60s, 70s, 80s, the U.S. was was such a large part portion of the global economy, and we were by far the largest commodity importer. Uh, so we we kind of had this system where you know we run persistent trade deficits. We get lots of dollars out there, and uh, you know there's so much demand for the dollar because it's the global reserve currency. You need it to buy oil. You need it to buy other commodities. And that kind of gives us a situation where the, the dollar is kind of always perpetually overvalued based on kind of what it would be if we didn't have the status. Uh, so currencies usually find a natural equilibrium around trade. So if you if you run persistent trade deficits, usually you have some sort of correction in your currency and your currency weakens. And that reduces your importing power uh, and increases your export competitiveness. But because there's so much external demand for the dollar, we never really normalize. We never really kind of go back to that equilibrium. And instead, we run pretty consistent trade deficits. And that gets, you know, that's important for a global reserve currency to do because, you know, a global reserve currency only works when there's enough of those currency units out in the world. Uh, but that has effects over the long term, right? So running persistent trade deficits doesn't come for free. And so basically, in exchange for having all the benefits of the global reserve currency, like, you know, it increases our kind of military power, uh, it, it kind of, you know, it, it gives us a very strong standing in the world. It makes it so we can print money to buy commodities. You know, it's a very powerful force. But on the other hand, we've had to basically export our manufacturing and industrial base uh, to, to do this because it made our physical products a lot less competitive uh, than many countries, not just emerging markets, but even compared to, to Europe and Japan, for example. Uh, their their uh, competitiveness uh, in terms of physical exports is much better than ours, and so you know we've had this cost. We've had to we've had to shift out a lot of this manufacturing capability, and that's of course this disproportionately benefited you know working class people, blue collar workers that that used to have kind of uh, you know more um, kind of power in that arrangement, and now because we've exported so much, uh, that that's been one of the contributors for for wealth inequality over this period. Yeah, we're seeing how how much that's exacerbated right now with the economic shutdowns. And you point this out in the article is that they basically run on a service economy. A lot of people depend on, on low level jobs in the service industry, restaurant industry, travel industry. And uh, it's really coming to a head at this particular moment as many of these people, even when they are working, only work for tips or, or mainly work for tips or other sorts of big on top of their, their low base pay. And, um, yeah, so this has been a theme on this podcast for a while. It feels like America is in a very vulnerable situation right now, and its uh, lust for the dollar reserve status may um, may be coming back to bite us in the ass. And uh, so that's interesting, and it's interesting seeing play out in the markets right now. I wrote about this yesterday. Like, are are we starting to see um, an inflation? The beginnings of an inflationary event. You're seeing the dot. You, you mentioned. That the dollars had this equilibrium over time, but last three months the Dixie index is down what like over seven percent now. You see stocks up twenty percent, Bitcoin up twenty, thirty percent, gold same thing. Are do you think we're beginning to see uh, confidence waning in in that reserve status? Uh, potentially, I, I view it. A, uh, there's a couple of different ways to kind of look at it, right? So uh, I shifted more to being dollar bearish back in uh, the beginning of October 2019. Uh, and that's uh, it basically happened because we had that repo spike, uh, which for people that don't know, basically the overnight lending rate, you know, between banks, uh, you know, blew up. Right. So instead of being able to borrow at a very low rate, suddenly that liquidity dried up and the, the rate like, you know, tripled or quadrupled overnight. The Federal Reserve came in the next day and had to basically print money to, to fix that hole. And then that marked a shift where the Federal Reserve had to begin buying treasuries outright. 
And so a lot of that was because, you know, prior to then, the U.S. was relying on private buyers and, it, it, to some extent, foreign buyers purchasing its treasury issuance. So we had we had really rising treasury issuance, but we were kind of saturating the amount of available buyers. And so during the repo spike, bank uh, cash levels got down to their, uh, you know, their low point over the past, you know, ever since the uh, global financial crisis, uh, banks had pretty low cash levels. Uh, you know, they kind of decreased from their peak in 2014 because they were buying treasuries. And uh, in 2019, right at that, right at the week of the repo spike, they hit their lowest cash level, you know, for that decade, pretty much. And so basically the Federal Reserve had to become the primary buyer of treasuries. They couldn't let banks continue to draw down their cash to buy treasuries. And in my view, that marked a pretty big shift in, in policy. So if we look back over the past, you know, since 1971, the dollars had these, these three uh, big super cycles, right? So, you know, after 1971, it had this period of weakness. And then, uh, you know, after Paul Volcker raised interest rates, we had a very strong dollar spike into the mid 80s. And they, they used the Plaza Accord to, to weaken the dollar because it was it was hurting both the U.S. and and other countries. It was just nobody's in, in interest to have a dollar that was just rapidly spiking like that. Uh, and then, you know, it decreased and then it had another like big uh, increase uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then, you know, the shifting monetary and fiscal policies again, uh, you know, that kind of had a, another weakening event. And then ever since 2015, we've been in another strong dollar environment. So it's, it's the third kind of major cycle uh, in this kind of, you know, 50 year, uh, you know, kind of uh, policy that we're in. And so my view is that starting in around late, late 2019 or so, we're potentially kind of ending this, this current dollar cycle strength. And of course, COVID came along and it diminished trade. So we had kind of that temporarily uh, strong dollar, right? Because that tends to happen in these big liquidity events, uh, you know, because so much uh, countries have dollar dominated debt, they need dollars to service that debt. So when trade diminishes, we kind of have a scramble for dollars, we tend to get a dollar spike. Uh, so there's a couple ways to look at what's happening now to the dollar. So one is you could uh, focus on the reserve currency status diminishing. That's definitely one way, one lens to look through it. And I think that's a pretty valid lens. Uh, especially because even though the dollar still has a large uh, status in the world, we're seeing uh, kind of cracks in it. So, for example, over the past you know five years or so, central banks have bought more gold than treasuries uh, as kind of a store of value, as a way to protect their currencies if they need it. We also have seen some of the more adversarial nations uh, de-dollarize to some extent. So Russia, for example, has rapidly de-dollarized. Uh, and we're also seeing, for example, trade between Russia and China is uh, rapidly de-dollarizing, and China is taking steps to, to try to de-dollarize, although they haven't done so as much as, say, Russia has. And so they use, you know, between them, for example, they use more rubles, yuan, and euros than they used to compared to even two years ago. They've, they've been rapidly kind of reducing their reliance on U.S. dollar status. Uh, another way to look at it is that the, the U.S. can have these big bear cycles, right? So after the 1980s and after the, the early 2000s, the dollar fell pretty dramatically compared to a basket of foreign currencies, but it didn't didn't really lose status, right? It, it was still the global reserve currency. It just happened to be, you know, because of the shifting monetary policies that ended up being a much weaker uh, for a period of time. So just because the dollar goes down uh, substantially doesn't mean that the, you know, the end of the reserve status is right around the corner, uh, but especially because we're also seeing in this cycle some things we haven't seen in those other bears uh, dollar bear cycles, which is interesting. So for example, throughout that whole 50 year period, for the mo most part, the US was the largest importer of commodities. Uh, but now the largest importer of commodities is China, for example. So uh, it's, it's, in my view, the current system is really straining uh, the dollar's role. Uh, and over the long term, these trade deficits are really built up. Uh, so we have, for example, a much deteriorated net international investment position. Uh, and this was actually predicted back, you know, when this when this whole thing was constructed decades ago, there were economists that saw that this would eventually happen. Like they pointed out that in order to have the global reserve currency status and all the benefits, you have to basically export your industrial base. And, um, you know, so so economists Triffin and, and Keynes both noticed that and they, they proposed alternative things you can do like a bank or or other sort of neutral assets that could be used for kind of settling global trade. But because they stuck with the dollar. We had benefits for a while, but now we're kind of on the opposite side of that, where we are getting more drawbacks. And we might be seeing some cracks in, in the kind of the usefulness of the current system, both for the U.S. and for the rest of the world. Yeah, uh, it's. I think this is playing out with the civil unrest that we have going on right now. It feels like people have definitely uh, been driven to a brink, if you will, and 
um, you mentioned this in the article, maybe we, we have reached the, uh, the end of a pendulum swing and it may be swinging back now. And you, you looked at, uh, stock prices and how far away they are from their historical PE levels and how, uh, how much overvalued they are at this given yeah. point in time. And maybe people, uh, just seeking, uh, seeking to keep up with inflation of the dollar with the printing um, in in tech stocks and in the service economy. Yeah, so uh, an interesting thing to look at is that whenever we have these big dollar spikes, something breaks in the world, uh, usually multiple things break. So for example, when the dollar spiked in the 1980s, uh, a lot of Latin American countries broke, right? Because they had large dollar-denominated debts. Uh, and when uh, the dollar goes up in value, it basically means that in local currency terms for them, their debts increase dramatically. It's like having quantitative tightening during a recession. So many of them couldn't pay back their debts and then they default or they have big, you know, kind of inflationary uh, currency crises. And so they had a lot of issues in the 1980s. Then uh, when we had the big dollar spike in the late 90s, um, the same thing had kind of happened to a lot of South uh, Asian countries. So of course, you know, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Korea, uh, and then even Russia in the in the north, they all had kind of these these uh, big uh, because they had very low reserves, a lot of dollar denominated debts, and so that kind of broke their system. And then uh, lately in this in this current third dollar spike, we've seen uh, you know Argentina uh, break, we've had Turkey break, we've had Lebanon break, uh, and then a lot of just kind of pressure. So we've seen like Chile have some pressure. They haven't broken to the same extent, but they've definitely had. Uh, some issues because they have a lot of dollar-denominated debt, and but also we see that whenever we have these strong dollar periods, the U.S. itself also, you know, corporate profit growth tends to flatline for several years whenever we have these strong dollar environments, and because you know a lot of it, the globe's so interconnected, right? So when the dollar strengthens, it makes our exports less competitive, uh, and uh, it makes our our kind of trade partners slow down economically. And so that often gets relieved by a much weaker dollar when they have to end up shifting monetary policy. Uh, and so the current situation now also is just because there's the U.S.'s role, their percentage of global GDP that the U.S. kind of makes up is diminished over decades, right? Because the rest of the world's kind of caught up with us compared to where we were, say, after World War II as a kind of a dominant economic power. So trying to use one country's currency for the entire world trade is much harder to do when that country is a diminishing share of global GDP. It's easier to do when, when your country is like 40% of global GDP, but it's harder to do when that country is only 20% of global GDP. And I think we're kind of running into some of these uh, kind of boundaries here. Yeah, I would agree. And it's, it drives a very interesting thought in my mind is, we talk about it a lot, is that the U.S. government and the Treasury and the economy has sort of weaponized the U.S. dollar against other parts yeah. of the world and financial system. Uh, if it is hitting ahead, like what is the next stage? Like trying to project forward, like what does the world look like with? I mean, it has had it before on the gold standard, but what would a transition to like an apolitical currency like gold or Bitcoin? How would that change the dynamic of, of global trade and and the inequality of the world? It seems that it would create a lot less friction. In my yeah. Mind, at least. Yeah, there are a couple different options to go down. So, uh, you know, people often ask, okay, if it's not going to be the dollar, what's what's going to take its place, right? But that starts with the assumption that there has to be one country's currency that is the global reserve currency. And this is actually this period where the dollar has had the status is actually very unusual because even though in the past there have been, you know, quote global reserve currencies, they've never had this far of a reach. So, for example. There was never a time where like only the British pound was used worldwide to buy all commodities. That was never part of that particular era's status as the global reserve currency. So this this kind of current run uh, from the 1970s to the present where all currencies are fiat currencies, but only one of those currencies can be used to buy commodities anywhere in the world is historically unusual. We have kind of a global lock. And we've been chipping away at that. So for example, you know, on, on margin, China has been able to buy, you know, some, some energy, you know, kind of outside of the dollar system and, you know, just trade between like Iran and other certain other countries have kind of skirted that a little bit. And of course, more trade between China and Russia or, so we're kind of seeing cracks in that system. Uh, so there's a, 
basically instead of one country coming along and just we, now we use that currency for all commodity pricing, that's not a realistic uh, kind of way to look at it, even though a lot of people look at it that way. So no country now is kind of big enough to have a share of GDP to have their currency be the only currency used for like global commodity pricing. And that's kind of the key foundation of what the global reserve currency is. It's kind of the shared unit of account for commodity pricing. So there's a couple ways that the system could transition to. One is simply a more multipolar currency world, right? So if, if the European Union, uh, you know, the Eurozone can buy more of their energy in euros, for example, that diminishes their reliance on the dollar. And if we see China be able to increase their contracts to be able to buy uh, energy uh, outside the dollar system as well by using their own currency, that can kind of uh, make a more multipolar world for, for uh, at least for the medium of exchange portion of, of uh, these, you know, global reserve status. So instead of just one country kind of having that benefit, there'd be, you know, three, four or five currencies that, that are kind of like, you know, currencies that can buy commodities generally. Uh, so that's one option is kind of this, this more multipolar system. And in that environment, uh, there's a variety of kind of neutral reserve uh, assets they can use. So one option is, of course, gold. Most central banks do hold gold. Uh, many of them haven't been buying, but other ones have been buying. We've actually had more gold buying by central banks in the past two years than pretty much any other year over the past 50 so we have kind of seen an increase in gold buying, especially among some of these countries like Russia that have been trying to de-dollarize. They've been kind of shifting towards that more neutral, uh, kind of you know, inherently kind of inflation-adjusted uh, asset with no counterparty risk. So that's one option. Uh, an option that really hasn't gained much traction is so. As I mentioned before, there were economists that saw this issue, right? So, so Triffin saw this issue, uh, Keen saw this issue like decades ago when, when this was all starting. And they proposed that instead of a global uh, dollar status, to have something like a Bancor or an SDR. And all that is is a basket of the major currencies. Uh, so the modern version of that would be a Libra if, if Facebook pulls that off. So basically, uh, the International Monetary Fund can issue SDRs, which are just baskets of, of global reserve currency. So you have like the dollars in there, uh, the pounds in there, the Swiss francs in there. It's kind of a collection of some of these major currencies. And what that does is essentially it, it's kind of a multipolar currency world, currency world, but it's it's kind of packaged together. Uh, so, of course, the older format is just issued by the IMF. You could also put it in a stable coin format. So all these, you know, there's different kind of technological approaches to, to package them together together. But the downside is it requires a lot of uh, working together. So, for example, all of those countries have to agree to, like, you know, print some dollars, print their currency, put it into this package, right? So the IMF can't just, you know, do it on its own. It can't just, it can't just create those currency units on its own. It pretty much just packages them together. Uh, so that's been uh, kind of a we haven't really seen the SDR really take off, despite the fact that it's existed for decades. Uh, that that idea is just kind of not uh, have ground. And then we have uh, Bitcoin. A lot of people are excited about Bitcoin's potential role in this. So it could, you know, for example, uh, serve as, uh, you know, a diversification if, if central banks, in addition to their gold holdings, if they want a kind of another asset that doesn't have counterparty risk, that's inherently scarce and you, you know, arguably inflation adjusted because of its scarcity. Uh, and so there are like a variety of different ways that this can shift to. And but they all involve kind of less reliance on any one country's fiat currency. Yeah. And so obviously I'm partial towards Bitcoin. This is a Bitcoin podcast. And the one thing that really excites me about Bitcoin and going back to energy markets is I, I believe that's where the basis of most of this trade starts, the commodities, particularly energy, oil being being the biggest, obviously. And Bitcoin with proof of work mining particularly really gets to the the base level of of pricing those commodities especially the wasted energy so if, uh, i alluded to it in the email uh i sent uh when we were setting up this this podcast but i work for a company great american mining and we're basically on oil and gas fields here in the u.s and we're using their waste gas to mine bitcoin and so they're able to find a a, a price if you will, for gas that would otherwise been wasted. And when you apply that to the rest of the world, whether it be stranded renewables, waste gas, or just extra um, energy that's being produced on, on certain oil fields or wherever it may be, it just inherently makes sense to me that Bitcoin may be the best sort of medium exchange pr pricing mechanism for a world that 
that doesn't want to have to to play nice with each other. It could be a, a currency of enemies, if you will, and you don't have to worry about uh, constructing an SDR or or uh, trying to replace U.S. dollar reserve currency with some other country's currency. And to me, it makes sense that we would transition to that. Um, sorry, I'm rambling here. Just want to get those thoughts out there. Yeah, it's definitely an efficient way to do it. Uh, if it, especially if it continues to gain uh, market capitalization. So right now, Bitcoin is still a pretty small market, which is actually one of the kind of the bullish arguments uh, among Bitcoiners is that this has a lot of room to grow. So of course, if you own a share of it, and they're not really making much more, uh, then each each individual Bitcoin can go up uh, pretty dramatically. Uh, but um, you know. Even gold has limitations, right? Because you know how many, how often are these like gold reserves audited, right, uh, on different central bank balance sheets? Uh, if they have to kind of settle in gold, uh, that kind of creates like a, a logistics headache. You know, if, if they want to have uh, kind of an underlying settlement layer for it, Bitcoin is, of course, it's very efficient. It's very uh, liquid. It's it's easily transmissible, uh, and so they have a, a kind of a fast way to verify transactions if they want to go that route for for kind of using that as like a settlement asset. Uh, and uh, to your point, places that have had kind of uh, very cheap electricity or very cheap energy uh, can have often been able to export that uh, in certain ways. So, for example, uh, I believe it's Iceland that, that, that kind of focused heavily on, uh, you know, aluminum processing because it's a very electricity uh, intense industry. And being able to take that, ex that extra energy converted to electricity and then you basically are exporting your electricity in the form of, of aluminum, right? So uh, Bitcoin plays a similar role for kind of finding these spots in the world that have, uh, you know, very cheap energy, you know, stranded, stranded energy or, you know, overbuilt like hydroelectric dams, things like that, where just energy is being produced but not used. And that's kind of a way of exporting that electricity as a form of, form of value because you can you can store up this asset. And, you know, kind of it's, it's a... a Gold deposits, for example, are they're pretty widespread, but they're still, you know, only in kind of the big ones are in a handful of countries. Whereas Bitcoin, something that that you know, anywhere that has kind of cheap power can can go into and kind of use that to their advantage. Yeah, it's revolutionary, I think, and it's it's going to be fascinating to watch uh, play out. Right now, a lot of the mining is is in China off of hydroelectric, but I think we're going to see a huge shift as oil and gas. Uh, producers, particularly here in North America, as the uh, United States, going back to uh, like Triffin dilemma and, and trying to become self, like trend towards more self-sufficiency, uh, particularly energy efficient self-sufficiency. Uh, this provides a a alternative revenue stream for these producers who we've yeah. seen this year get blown out uh, due to potentially a, a terrible misallocation of capital. Um, in in the space because they just want to get the oil out of the ground and get it to market and that's the best way to monetize that but now with alternative revenue streams you could probably have better capital allocations in that sector particularly and, and it can help sort of shore up our, our independence from an energy perspective yeah i think so especially from their perspective yeah if they were using their uh, energy they, the fact that instead of selling their energy on the cheap if they were to use it for something like bitcoin mining uh that would have you know helped their bottom line yeah and it's, I mean, that's our main thesis at Great American Mining is that these oil companies are going to wake up to that and it's going to drive, there's going to be positive externalities throughout a lot of the supply chain that, that people don't really realize yet. And um, it is still early days though. And it's another fascinating article that you wrote a few weeks ago is, is why you, know, you decided to uh, invest in Bitcoin earlier um, this year in April, I believe. And um I really enjoyed uh, your perspective of why you didn't get in uh, in 2017. Obviously, the price was inflated, but you were um, also cautious about uh, the network effect of Bitcoin and the competing currencies. And so I, I'd love to dive into how your perspective shifted on that over the last three years. Um, so it has Bitcoin sort of cemented itself in your mind as, as a mainstay? In my view, it has. So yeah, when I, I originally covered Bitcoin in, in autumn of 2017, because we had that big run up in price, and I had a lot of uh, my readers kind of email me and say, hey, what do you think of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? So I, I did that big uh, kind of long form deep dive article into it. Uh, and I, I approached Bitcoin from a couple different angles, because especially back then, the narrative, they were still kind of emphasizing the medium of exchange 
uh, aspect of it, uh, in addition to the store of value aspect of it. So it's kind of like approaching it, uh, its valuation from a couple different perspectives revolving around medium of exchange and store of value. And so I concluded that as medium of exchange, it looked very pricey, but as a store of value, it definitely had some promise. And my main concern at the time was that even though Bitcoin is scarce, anyone now, because it's been figured out how to do it, anyone can create a cryptocurrency. And then those have their own kind of scarce units. So you could have a situation where the whole market gets very diluted, where there's just like, you know, countless cryptocurrencies and none of them really have a ton of market share. So it's kind of like, you know, none of their network effects are very strong and we don't really have a lot of value kind of coalesce into one or two of the protocols, uh, especially because 2019 saw like that that huge alt season and Bitcoin fell below like 40 percent of, of market capitalization of, of the crypto space. Uh, so. I covered that and I said, you know, I'm kind of just going to, you know, wait and see here. I didn't take a position. Um, and so, so, of course, we saw that blow off top at the end of the year and then we saw a big crash and we've had this kind of consolidation pattern. So I, I've uh, kind of reinvestigated the market early this year in, in March and April. And I saw that, you know, kind of during that big liquidity uh, uh, crash we had in March, right? So when we had that the whole COVID shutdown, we had liquidity dry up, we had the dollar spike, we had even, you know, stocks crashed, uh, even treasury market became a liquid, gold, silver sold off, and, and then Bitcoin was was influenced by that as well. It had that big, uh, sharp price drop because it's, it's al almost any asset other than like hard cash and, and like T-bills uh, crashed in mid-March. And so I just noticed it, it, it bounced back pretty hard. And Bitcoin has, uh, you know, compared to 2017, it's increased its, its uh, market share. Uh, you know, especially if you look at kind of a, there's, you can look at just pure market capitalization, but you can also do other things like you can take out stable coins, you can take out uh, highly centralized currencies and just see as among currencies that are trying to be like money, uh, it's got even bigger market share, right? So it's kind of showing that over, you know, 11 years into its history, it's it's got very strong network effects. I also see that every every single time I look at the industry, the ecosystem's getting easier to use uh, for all the different access points, uh, you know, I, I looked at it back in 2011. It was like, you need, you know, it's like the, the, the challenge of even getting into the space was very hard. And then I looked at it in 2017, it was way better. And I looked at it in 2020 and I'm like, it's, it's, it's just, it's getting so much better so quickly. So there's, there's going to be, you know, it's kind of the on ramps for, for both retail investors and institutional investors keeps improving. I also liked seeing that they were kind of Bitcoin specific companies. Uh, so instead of just crypt, uh, companies that only uh, focus on all cryptos, there have been more kind of Bitcoin specific uh, so there's uh, companies that you just. Sorry about that. All good. All my, good. My internet got cut off. I don't know what the last thing you heard. The uh, another thing that uh, really drew your attention to Bitcoin specifically were the uh, sprouting of Bitcoin only focused businesses. Yeah. So over the past, you know, while now we've seen kind of a you know, instead of just companies that focus on cryptocurrency in general. We're seeing, uh, in my view, more companies that kind of uh, focus on Bitcoin specifically. And I think that that's kind of a value, valuable part of the protocol's network effect, to have kind of companies built specifically around that protocol, rather than being able to kind of easily switch among all the different protocols. So I think over time, Bitcoin's network effect, uh, specifically as a store of value uh, and as like a settlement medium of exchange, has really kind of enhanced over time. Yeah. And it's... Uh... It's going to be interesting to see if we rip into another bull market here how how much more of uh, a network effect and dominance it, it accrues and just yesterday uh, it was highlighted that uh, a publicly traded company is going to start diversifying their cash balances into bitcoin too and that's another trend i'm very interested to start following more intently is how do corporations uh, beyond individuals now we have corporations starting to pay attention to what the fed's doing and the uh, relative strength of the dollar to years past and, and thinking about um, diversifying away from that into things like gold and bitcoin and uh, i think once you see uh, a crowd of boardrooms sort of asking uh, the companies that the, of the boards they sit on to, to start investing in bitcoin there's going to be some some pretty big dominoes to fall and, and it'll be interesting to see uh how how much sort of dominance bitcoin gains in that in that scenario yeah historically uh you know it's i often like to emphasize long-term debt cycle 
where debt kind of builds up over different cycles, uh, multiple cycles in a row, until it gets to such a high level that it usually requires a, a, a you know a, a bigger deleveraging event. So we often see these issues where so much debt builds up in a system, and instead of having some sort of sovereign default, there's kind of a, a soft default in terms of a currency devaluation. And uh, if you look back, for example, uh, after World War II, which was the only other time that federal debt to GDP got this high, the next several years, uh, like several decades, I mean, were pretty much bad times to hold cash for treasuries. Like like yields did not keep up with inflation uh, for a multi-decade period between like if you bought treasuries in the late 1930s all the way to the mid-1970s, you didn't really make any money. You just kind of you kind of lost value by holding, you know, uh, T-bills, uh, 10-year treasuries and just keeping your money in bank accounts. It just kind of wasn't worth it. And we're kind of at that part again where real yields are likely to be, you know, low for a very long period of time and most likely negative for a big chunk of that time meaning that that the yields you get on you know t-bills treasuries or or bank accounts fail to keep up with inflation uh so whether you're uh, an ind individual or you're one of those companies that has billions of dollars in, in, in cash equivalents right uh it kind of gives an incentive to try to park some of that in something that kind of holds its value a little bit better so you know for many people that could be gold or silver and then, but Bitcoin scales very well, especially if its market cap keeps increasing. You know, um, you know, in this having cycle, the next having cycle, there's kind of more incentive to try to hold some of that value in something that is that is, you know, scarce because the whole kind of the opportunity cost of holding a, a yieldless asset is it you know during environments where where treasuries and T bills and bank accounts give you a positive roll rate of return on your money. Uh, it can make sense to hold them, but when you're not even getting your, your your yields are not even keeping up with inflation, there's very little incentive to hold all of that kind of this fiat store of value. Yeah, I agree. This is another thing you alluded to in in the article we started talking about in the beginning of this podcast is the real rate of return on stocks in the future. Like they may, and that's I think something that uh, the layman doesn't really understand. They see stock markets rallying, like oh, we're getting wealthier, but when you factor in inflation, the real rate is not as pretty as it may seem, especially if you price stock indices and things like hard assets like gold. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple ways to look at that. So in any given decade, uh, you know, an equity market in the world does pretty well. So for example, the 1980s, Japan's equity market did very well. In the 90s, the US did very well. Uh, in the 2000s, emerging markets did very well. In the 2010s, the US has done very well again. And those decades usually end uh, with um, that market that did very well becomes quite overvalued. So, for example, in the, in the late 1980s, of course, Japan had one of the biggest equity bubbles ever seen. Uh, in the end of the 90s, the U.S. had the dot-com bubble. Uh, at the end of the 2000s, emerging markets, uh, many of them were priced as high as the dot-com bubble was for the U.S. Like in terms of, uh, say, the, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, like India and China, they had just very expensive markets. Uh, and then now we're in an environment where the U.S., uh, at, as the kind of 2010s decade came to an end, we're now in 2020, of course, uh, we have pretty high valuations by just about any metric, uh, both compared to our history and compared to you know, a lot of comparable countries in the rest of the world. And so this the way that tends to kind of work out is that the next decade usually isn't very great for that equity market, uh, especially in real terms, right? So even if you know you have nominal returns are okay, uh, it often has these long periods where as priced in a hard asset, like say you look at the S&P 500 as priced in gold, it actually peaked back in 2018. And we've been making lower lower lows and lower highs in the S&P 500 as priced in gold since that period, even though it's 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 of course making new nominal highs since then. And so, uh, yeah, I, I doubt that the U.S. Uh, kind of indices, equity indices, are going to be really kind of good real return generators over the next decade, uh, regardless of what they do nominally. And I think that you know investors are going to be looking for other assets that could potentially give them some alpha. And you know, there's gold and silver that I've been bullish on. The thing about Bitcoin is that because it's still a small market capitalization, even a small allocation of Bitcoin uh, can potentially do wonders for a portfolio if it has anywhere. You know, if if this having cycle, the next having cycle, do do uh, you know pretty good price action for for the protocol, you could see a lot of gain from even a smallish uh, Bitcoin position, which is kind of the case for. Uh, institutional investors to have at least some allocation, like to have a non-zero Bitcoin allocation. Yeah, it's got that asymmetric payoff. Yeah. And but going back to like real returns, and it's something that really irks me 
is the fact that the Fed will come out and say that inflation is not hitting their target of 2%. But if you look in certain areas, it seems that there's pretty, pretty high inflation. So I, I'm very interested to get your thoughts on what, like, what do you think of the CPI? Like, is it a good measure of inflation? Like the Fed came out a couple of weeks ago and they're starting to posture like they want to attempt to overshoot the 2% target and with their policy moving forward. And is that just going to exacerbate the, the inflation that, that isn't highlighted via the CPI? Yeah, so I don't think it's a very good measure, uh, especially, you know, they've, they've kind of changed how it works over the time. So there's all sorts of things they can do to get it down. So one is that they can use substitutions, uh, and it also doesn't necessarily reflect the basket of goods that a normal person buys. Uh, so, for example, this year, inflation for healthcare costs and food are about 5% year over year. Right. So that that's kind of and if you're not making a lot of money, necessary expenses take up a bigger share of your income than if you're making a lot of money. Right. So if, if these kind of necessary things are going up in price pretty rapidly, that can hurt a lot of people. So we have uh, we've seen over this, this kind of, quote, low inflation period, uh, we've seen kind of a big divergence between services and goods. So, for example, things like education, uh, things like healthcare. Uh, all, all sorts of stuff that we can't really outsource. A lot of that has gone up uh, a lot faster than the official CPI. On the other hand, uh, things that either greatly benefit from technology or that greatly benefit from uh, offshoring, those are the things that have been more disinflationary. So for example, uh, you can get a much better TV now than you could 10 years ago for less money, right? So so the, the, the inflation of TVs has been greatly negative due to a combination of better technology and outsourcing. Uh, but some of these trends can revert. So, for example, uh, partly, you know, after decades of Triffin dilemma forcing the U.S. to have, you know, very, uh, you know, kind of wide trade deficits, now there's more of a political interest in getting some of these supply chains back. So, COVID-19, for example, showed how vulnerable we were uh, with medical supplies, right? So, medical supplies, we mostly had to import them. Same thing with pharmaceutical components; we had to import most of that because we don't make it here. Uh, in addition. Uh, you know, uh, for example, Donald Trump made the, the trade deficit with China one of his kind of key policy goals to try to just have have you know, kind of a less imbalance there and more kind of domestic production. And, you know, so going forward, if we have less kind of benefit from offshoring, uh, that can take away one of the drivers that have offset some of these inflationary trends. So if we only look at, say, healthcare and, and food and uh, you know, education and services, all sorts of things like that, inflation would have been higher. So if we if we kind of diminish some of this goods de- disinflation, uh, that can translate into higher inflation. And the Fed, they actually don't even look at CPI. They look at something different, which is PCE. So that even that even takes out like food and energy, for example. Uh, so nobody needs those. Yeah. So basically, what they're they kind of understate inflation, and then they want to overshoot their understated inflation. So I do think we could have an environment where, you know, we're getting into the the much higher inflation than kind of the the very low levels we've been measuring in this particular you know time. Because right now, you know, of course, we had the impact from the from the pandemic and the shutdown. So we've had kind of very low inflation inflation prints, right? So CPI is very low, PCE is very low, but of course we're in kind of this brief deflationary shock. So, for example, uh, you know, people made fewer big purchases. We had a lot of shutdowns. And so even though we had kind of essential goods inflating, we had kind of a disinflation among, uh, you know, discretionary goods. Uh, but as kind of the, the economy normalizes and there's a lot more money supply in the system now, I do think we could see kind of a stabilization or an uptick in velocity. We could see higher inflation. And some parts of the treasury market are already kind of sniffing that out. So in addition to gold and silver and Bitcoin all doing well, if you look at treasury break-evens, right? So the difference between treasury inflation-protected securities and the normal the normal type that are not inflation-protected, we've seen a lot of buying interest in the inflation-protected type. So we've seen kind of the market's expectation of inflation rising ever since ever since it bottomed in March. Yeah, and so that's one thing I've been wondering too, and thinking about and writing about is. This is a similar situation at the Weimar Republic. I'm not saying we're going to have hyperinflation here, but the Weimar Republic was in a very similar situation, similar in the fact that they shut down their economy when France invaded them and, and told their, their factory workers not to go to work and we'll print money to pay you. And it seems like we're doing something similar here where it's like, hey, because of this virus, 
Uh, we're going to tell you not to go to work. We're going to bump up unemployment benefits and even airdrop some money on you. And I think uh, the powers that be have not thought through the repercussions of that particular policy, especially if we extend it into the future and keep the economy shut down to a certain extent. Yeah, there are a couple of historical comparisons. So one thing I've been doing is contrasting this period with the Great Depression in the U.S. So, for example, uh, during the Great Depression, uh, they didn't have like FDIC insurance, right? So when banks failed, you just lost your deposits. And so during like a three-year period from uh, 1929 to like 1932, about a third of U.S. broad money supply was just destroyed. It just went to money heaven. It just it just ceased to exist pretty much. And so we money actually, heaven. yeah, you actually had uh, outright deflation in the money supply. Uh, so that was a, a very strong deflationary environment. Uh, you know, until about 1933 or so when they started to reverse that, partially by the, the, the intentional dollar devaluation relative to gold and a lot of money printing. Uh, so if you look at this period, however, even though we've had a similar kind of economic shock, the government has done so much transfer payments, right? So there's direct cash to businesses, to people, uh, to corporations. Uh, we've seen a, a, a very sharp rise, like pretty much the highest ever modern increase in the money supply, even though we've had kind of a decrease in production. So, you've, uh, And uh, in the near term, it's not been very inflationary because as I mentioned, like velocity just collapsed. Like, so people aren't spending that money. They're just saving it. They're paying off debt. Uh, they're buying essentials. Uh, but as we kind of see things normalize, I do think that the increased uh, money supply compared to the not increased amount of goods produced, and in, in some cases, supply disruptions, uh, could be more inflationary, especially in targeted areas. The Weimar Republic was interesting because if you look at hyperinflations throughout history, most hyperinflations occur to countries that have an external obligation that's that's not something they can print. So it happened in Weimar Republic, you know, with war reparations. Uh, they uh, after World War One, uh, they owed war reparations, and that kind of is an obligation that they can't print. Uh, we see similar things in certain emerging markets over the decades, where if they have, for example, dollar-denominated debt, and so if we go back to the global, uh, you know, reserve status of the dollar, a lot of times the only kind of loans they can get at reasonable rates, either for the corporations or their governments, is to borrow in dollars. Uh, so when you have kind of an, a situation where the dollar increases and you have a recession in that country, those debts become unpayable. And they can't print those those obligations away because those countries can't print dollars. So what we often see is a, a hyperinflation or a near hyperinflation in the currency where you just see rapid uh, de de deterioration in the currency strength. One of the advantages today among developed markets is that a lot of the obligations are um, uh, you know, denominated in their own currency. So for example, the US sovereign debt is denominated in dollars and, and Japan's sovereign debt is denominated in yen, for example. So uh, my base case isn't to see hyperinflations out of these major currencies, uh, but I do expect to see kind of uh, pretty considerable currency devaluations, uh, probably similar to what we saw uh, in the 1930s, for example. Uh, and while we're on this subject, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on modern monetary theory. It seems like that's going to be, it, arguably it's already being implemented, but it seems that it's becoming more popular, especially among people of power who have the the ability to implement it how do you think that uh, that affects all of this um uh so if you look back in the 1940s uh they used pretty much mmt to fund the war effort so what that is is kind of the combination of the treasury and the federal reserve working together uh so Usually the central bank is supposed to be independent, or at least in the current system, that's kind of how it's supposed to work. But if you get to a situation where debt becomes very extreme and the, the government wants to do very large fiscal, they work together. So for example, the, the Federal Reserve bought a lot of the treasury issuance uh, that the, the treasury issued in order to fund World War II. And so in that sort of environment, you get kind of a financial repression where uh, you're, you're in that environment where rates are held down to very low levels, despite the fact that you can get increases in inflation. So it ends up being a, kind of a currency devaluation environment. Uh, so for example, I, I just I just tweeted out, um, you know, that the dollar officially just lost, you know, kind of a, it's 1% of what it was uh, when we had that gold peg. So for example, the, the dollar used to be pegged to, to it was $1, it was one ounce of gold was equal to uh, $20.67. And today we touched, uh, you know, $2,067, right? So, it's, it, and Warren Moser uh, of MMT fame replied and said, it's not about the, 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 
the value of the dollar. It's about the value of all dollars. And I think yeah. that, that kind of gives a good insight to how they, they view it. And so in this environment, we're going to have probably very rapid, uh, you know, very large fiscal spending combined with low rates and even yield curve control by the central bank to keep rates low. Uh, that tends to result in these currency devaluations that I've talked about, that usually these long-term debt cycles are resolved with some degree of currency devaluation. Uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a bad environment, it can be a hyperinflation, whereas in a more controlled environment, it's just kind of a, a partial devaluation, like we saw in the 1930s or like we saw in the, in the 1970s, for example. Uh, so I do think we're going to be in a more MMT-heavy environment, uh, similar to the 1940s, uh, but instead of fighting an external war, it'll be fighting, you know, whatever else they want to fight, either the resp response from the pandemic or just the massive amount of debt in society. Uh, so I do think that this is going to be an environment where a lot of these scarce assets can do pretty well, like gold, silver, uh, copper producers, uh, you know, just high quality uh, scarce assets. And that, in my view, includes Bitcoin. Yeah. So that's my consternation with all this policy, especially MMT's an extension and a a. Uh, amplific amplification of the policies of the last decade and a half, I would argue, and it's, it's just delaying the inevitable of this mass devaluation you're talking about. Like, what would it take for uh, the Fed or even the U.S. government to sort of bite the bullet and swallow the hard medicine of of trying to contract the balance sheet and or maybe put some more hard assets on their their balance sheet or peg the dollar even to a hard asset like gold or or Bitcoin. Um, it seems that MMT and QE are, are just politically expedient solutions that, that we have been able to prove, I would argue, up to this point that aren't really effective in the long term. Yeah, one, one kind of axiom to focus on for sovereign countries that print their own currency is that they very rarely default uh, for sovereign debt. So, for example, uh, you know, a lot of the sovereign defaults you hear about, it's because you know it's those emerging markets, for example, that owe a lot of dollar-denominated debt, for example. Whereas you would, you, like, you wouldn't really see, say, Japan default on yen-denominated bonds or or the U.S. default on treasuries. So instead, what they do is they turn to soft default defaults, which is devaluing the currency. And so they do they they turn to things like QE and other ways where they print money to buy those treasuries uh, with the hope of eventually inflating it away. One thing that's kind of different about 2020 compared to uh, you know the past 10 to 15 years is that we've kind of sh uh, shifted to some of that money getting more in the real economy, which can be more inflationary. Uh, so uh, one of the frameworks I like to share is uh, Ray Dalio's framework uh, of Bridgewater, one of you know the world's largest hedge fund, and he kind of divides. He kind of thinks of three different types of monetary policy. There's monetary policy one which is the central bank can manipulate interest rates uh, and that kind of have dis different uh, effects on the economy. Uh, now, monetary policy two is that they can turn to QE or asset purchases where they, they, print, they print money and they buy things like treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And that doesn't really get money out into the economy. It just kind of recapitalizes banks and does things like that. So for example, in 2008, uh, most of that didn't really find its way into the economy, but it did kind of recapitalize banks. So they went into that crisis with 3% cash as a percentage of assets, and they ended with 15% cash as a percentage of assets because the Federal Reserve printed money, gave them the money, and then took some of their, some of their assets. Uh, so monetary policy three, on the other hand, is direct injections of that cash into the economy uh, with printed money. And so if you look at, say, transfer payments, right by the by the government to its citizens and people uh 2008 wasn't very big in that regard uh, they didn't actually give a lot of money to the people and to companies it mostly just went to the to shoring up the banking system so even though people feared that 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 qe would be inflationary uh it really wasn't for the most part because it just kind of found its way into financial markets it didn't really get out into consumer prices so it, you could argue it was inflationary for asset prices uh but it wasn't really inflation it wasn't really inflationary for say the cost of bread or something uh, whereas what we're experiencing now is with such a large kind of fiscal injection into the economy, uh, this is a somewhat more inflationary environment uh, down the road, most likely, because they are uh, putting money directly into you know the helicopter checks that people got, the 600 a week and extra federal unemployment people got, uh, half trillion dollars went out in PPP loans to small businesses, and most of those turn into grants, so they don't really have to be repaid, they just become kind of free money. 
uh, we've seen, uh, you know, kind of a, a backstop of the corporate debt market, right? So the, the Treasury allowed the Fed to buy corporate bonds and cover their losses. Uh, so uh, it's just, it's, I think we're in an environment now where it is kind of fundamentally different in some ways the last 10 to 15 years uh, in the sense that this this time it could be more inflationary. Uh, and uh, what they're probably going to do is that they can use yield curve control or other things to lock yields at pretty low levels, even though even if inflation gets higher than those levels. Uh, so you're in an environment where if you're holding money in a bank account or in treasuries, you can lose a lot of your purchasing power over the course of a decade uh, by by kind of keeping it in those negative real yield instruments. Yeah. Do you find this insane like I do? Am I weird to find these solutions insane? I think I I would if I didn't see how many times in history the same thing happens. That's what's exactly funny. yeah. Well, that's that's the definition of insanity. Yeah, right? like they're repeating things that have happened many times. Yeah, like I um I, I shared with with some of my subscribers. There's a a book that was kind of uh, going over some of the policies in, in ancient Greece, right? So like like twenty six hundred years ago or something like that. And they had currency devaluations then too. Like they dealt they had the same problem. They had this big debt buildup. And so one of the things they did was they devalued the currency. It's just kind of, it's literally a cycle is like as old as like modern history is that we, we find ourselves too much debt builds up and they either can choose like a big kind of nominal default and kind of just start fresh or they can devalue the currency and kind of default in real terms. And it's just, it's a cycle that keeps happening over and over again. So uh, a lot of people kind of, focus on how unusual it is and it all it always is unusual but it's just funny how reliable it is like every every 50 to 100 years the, the same kind of things happen uh with of course different tools each time so each time they have kind of different ways to do the same thing what if bitcoin breaks the wheel i <laughs> <laughs> will see we shall see um and to tie this up i know we're going over the a lot of time here to bring it back to uh, the original paper we started talking about and the Triffin dilemma. So do you think a, a way to sort of help uh, bridge the gap of inequality is, not, uh, is to bring more manufacturing home and try to produce like it may be um, in the short term may hurt a little bit to, to produce things here, but in the long term it may create a more stable economy overall. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think, you know, running decades and decades of persistent trade deficits is is not a permanently sustainable situation, uh, and I think we're kind of testing the breaking points. Uh, so we've we've seen a rise in populism, for example, and that tends to happen at these culminations of these long-term debt cycles. And then, especially when you add the element of that we've outsourced so many of the, the kind of manufacturing jobs, and it's people often think it's like an emerging market phenomenon, like you only outsource jobs to emerging markets. But for example, Japan and Germany have much larger industrial bases than the U.S. does as a percentage of GDP, right? So it's not just like a, you know, developed markets all outsourcing their jobs to emerging markets. It's more been a specific U.S. thing. Like it's not something that a lot of our industrial uh, advanced peers have done. And so there's clearly a, a renewed political interest in bringing some jobs back, uh, but that's probably going to require a shift in kind of the, the way that the global reserve currency works because you can't bring all those jobs back while still having you know, the global reserve currency, at least as currently structured, like where it's the only currency that the whole world can buy commodities in, for example, that something has to change in, in some of the ways that we previously went over, either a, kind of a more uh, multipolar currency world or different sort of neutral like reserve settlement assets, rather than just kind of using the dollar as, as this kind of global lock on everything, because those are kind of competing forces, like trying to bring jobs back while also trying to to enforce dollar status around the world are kind of competing interests. Yeah. The reserve status is sort of like the ring from Lord of the Rings. It's got this <laughs> somebody's gotta throw it in the volcano of Mordor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well Lynn, uh I really love your content. I appreciate that you took some time to sit down and record this conversation. I I thoroughly enjoyed it and I think uh the audience is gonna get a, a lot of value from from your insights. Um and I guess just to wrap it up here, do you have any sort of parting notes, final thoughts on the state of the global macro situation right now or anything we should look out uh, content-wise from you in the future? Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, and I, like, I just think the 2020 is going to be a very interesting decade. And it's a general rule that what whatever worked in the past decade is usually not the same thing that works in the next decade, right? So 
of course, individuals like like a like a smaller thing, of course, can. So, for example, even though Bitcoin worked in the past decade, I think I think it'll still work in this decade. But for example, the dominance of U.S. stocks over pretty much any other asset is unlikely to repeat uh, as strongly in the 2020s. And so, uh, I think investors would do well to kind of like look at first principles and see what what things are likely to do well in this environment. Uh, and you can use kind of history as a guide, or you can use you know, just math, just kind of looking at, okay, what does real, what does well in a negative real rate like world, right? So if we're in a long period of, of negative real rates for things, what sort of things do well? And generally the answer is scarce assets, uh, especially if they're not kind of inherently overpriced, like say like, you know, Manhattan penthouses or something. Like if, <laughs> as long as you're kind of focusing on reasonably priced scarce assets, they tend to do very well in this sort of environment. That's uh, kind of my view to, to, to kind of focus on. I align with that view that's why we're into bitcoin that's why we yeah. talk about bitcoin and uh again thank you lynn i really appreciate it i hope you have a great day and hopefully we can do this again at some point yeah sounds good thanks awesome that's all we got this week freaks peace and love Ta-kee!